0: RRR. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxhall.
1: And I'm Bron Burton. How are you, Bron? Good, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm well. Good. I am. I am well. Good. My team won last night, which has not been standard this year, but you know, we keep
1: going. For, Your team beat my team. Yes, they did. They did. I did we didn't sing deal, each other that week. No. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I went. Oh my God, we almost pinched it back from you. <laughs> We never deserve it. It's been
1: that an one. interesting journey being an Essendon supporter oh over goodness, the last couple of years and having a son who went from being a junior member of the football club to not wanting to know about football for a couple of years. Oh,
0: because of the oh, alleged drug taking.
1: copped a hammering in the playground. I don't, it's been a really, really interesting. Yeah, I've I've wondered how many other kids across the state. We're going to talk about marine and coastal things shortly. <laughs> yes. But I have wondered how many other kids across well, not just the state but the country have have copped the same thing and just taunts in the playground. Goodness, your may. team of cheaters, your team of drug cheats, and yeah, wow, yeah the kids yeah. have just gone. We don't want anything to do with football because they've completely associated it with a negative. How experience. interesting. Well, anyway, I mean, I know I did that in the workplace with my colleagues, <laughs> who, but you know, <laughs> yeah. As adults, <laughs> yeah, we kind yeah. of, you know, <laughs> develop the ability. Well, this is what yeah, they've been doing. we with brought as off well. a duck's back, but yeah. not for the, yeah, the kids. Good it's point. a big thing. And, you know, a lot of their identity at school focuses around yeah. for the kids who are into football, focuses around that. So, yeah. Well, anyway, anyway. Marine and coastal things. Yes. But before we do. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Lord Timothy Thorpe has once
0: again delivered. It's a, just a beautiful show. He's a beautiful man.
1: Indeed. Kent's a beautiful man too. Yes, he, yes he is too. Yes, he is. Yeah, he's, take, he is. he's out there uh, he's doing what he does best. Calls. Yeah, having um, coffee, <laughs> just <laughs> chilling. That's doing what he does best. Having, having a good coffee. Hey, let's go through the program.
0: Indeed, we're going to a bit of news at the start. Yeah, catch up on some of the latest and greatest news and views. Buckets of news. Just buckets. Is buckets. that how it? When your mum measures it now?
1: Grab bags. We're bags of news.
0: And a special guest is going to pop in.
1: Yes, Chris Smythe. We are so delighted to be able to catch up with Chris. We haven't seen him for a while. No. He, um, if uh, if the name is familiar to you, uh, he was and now is again a marine campaigner for the Victorian National Parks Association. He had a stint running the marine campaign work for the Australian Conservation Foundation and uh, before that was extre- instrumental in bringing in uh, stra- um, well our, our marine national parks and sanctuaries in Victoria. About 12, 13 years ago. So we haven't caught up with Chris for a while. He's back at the VNPA. We're going to talk to him about a few things. Some of their campaigns that are running. um, There's the super trawler, but one that kind of caught my eye when I was having a flick through their newsletter was um, a campaign around pippies and pippy harvesting. Yeah, I love this. Yeah, this is really interesting. In in, well protected areas, and uh, and some real issues that are currently. Existing and not being addressed appropriately according to the BMPA, um, it'd
0: be interesting to, to yeah, i would be to hear Chris's view about because it, it's one of these things that you know like, in terms of potential impact. I mean, it sounds you know tiny,
1: but the, it the could be pippy. massive.
0: Yeah, so it'd be really interesting to hear. Yeah, and then after that, we, we um, you touched on last week about the Deepwater Horizon and the yes. five year anniversary, and so a bit of a follow on in a way around that around which links it through to a thing called marine snow. Just going to leave it there. Marine snow—it's not stuff that falls in the Arctic on the ocean.
1: You know nothing, marine <laughs> snow. You're a Game of Thrones fan? I, I, you won't get that. You won't get that time. reference.
0: Sorry, I think I'm the only one in Western civilization
1: <laughs> who hasn't actually seen any of it. I binge-watched Game of Thrones <laughs> but, but after. the I, entire thing. Well, I, yeah, I did. I had my shoulder reconstruction, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I was completely, you know. Sitting yeah, there nothing doing nothing. Do. And I thought, well, I might as well watch all four seasons of Game of Thrones. So I watched it back to back pretty much. Oh, my God. Had to switch it off when the kids came home from school. It's not I very kid-friendly. I understand yeah. Yes. But, uh, oh, gosh, it was good. So I, I, we, I will get into it at one point. Yeah. Oh, it's it's, it's, it's life-changing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Actually, there's all it's sorts lovely. of there's marine references right through it because some of it is set in little kind of fishing villages and, of course, it's all it's all um, made up but it's, it's so roughly cool. set, you know, in, in medieval English times but with the odd dragon thrown in as well. Yeah. So it's um, – I love it. <laughs> it's life changing.
0: It is life oh changing. Yeah. Oh dear. she we laugh in it? the morning? What's the weather going to be?
1: Nineteen and mostly sunny no, today. Really? Yeah. It was twenty three yesterday. It was kind of. Where did it come from? It's like we come through winter and back into spring, but um, mostly uh, around the high teens, early twenties. So tomorrow, uh, twenty one, and a bit like today, mostly sunny, possible late shower, um, and then some showers on. Tuesday, 18, and then sort of the odd shower or two and up in the high teens for the rest of the week. But I think today is Goodness. probably going to be the pick.
0: So we've lost those, like, cold nights. we had those, like, crazy cold nights. They've gone.
1: Uh, yeah, actually, they have gone. Their temperature, oh. night temperature's not going to drop much below... 10, 11, 13 That's for the minimum I,
0: I, Cloud cover You know, it's going to be like What is it, about two months And it'll be 10, 11, oh, yeah. 13 In the middle of the day I I So bit better lap this up
1: I like winter uh, Yeah mm-hmm.
0: I, I The only bit of I, d- I mean, yes, I do I do But I like clear winter Yes Not drizzle winter so what about the other bit? Tide we're like, we to do tides.
1: Yes, uh, quarter to twelve. There will be a high tide at Port Phillip Heads, and then a low tide at 5:25 this afternoon. Surf forecast. Um, and Dr. Surf was on last week, and he completely concurred with the the surf forecast. So you think we can trust it? I think so. Yeah, okay. Swellnet does it. They do a pretty good job. Small swells, freshening nor-westerlies, uh tending westerlies, proving limited surfing opportunities today. Water temperature 17 degrees, so it's still it's um, still about the same. Air temperature inside and outside the water. <laughs> Phil Pyland, ordinary <laughs> one <laughs> meter waves. Oh, right inside. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah as in yeah, in, yeah. under. Mm-hmm. Under. Get my prepositions. My prepositions aren't good <laughs> <laughs> this time of the morning. So no. It's preposition, isn't it? Uh, I, yeah. Yeah, in. We'll, we'll go and with that. on. Yeah, on, yeah on. they're pre- with. Through. Yeah, of. Around.
0: For. <laughs> with. No, with's a conjunction, isn't it? is not it? because?
1: Oh. <laughs> Phillip Island, one metre waves at Wollamai, first thing ahead of the westerly breeze. Mornington Peninsula, average one metre waves and surf mm. coast. Janjuk, Fairhaven, small clean waves around a me- uh, half a metre. Suitable for surfers of all abilities. So it looks like the surf might be small but passable today. Mm. That's, the, uh, that's the weather forecast. Ah, lovely. We've got time for a little bit of news.
0: I reckon we could do a quick one and then I'm going to do um, a little giveaway. Okay. Before we play, but give us a bit of news and then we'll do a quick giveaway. I'm
1: going to do a bit of positive news because there's been so much bad news this week. We've all been inundated with one bad news story oh, after another and I wanted to particularly give this one some profile because it's some positive eco work being done in Western Australia and um, particularly you'll you'll know Anthe, about the somewhat catastrophic decisions being made by the West Australian Premier and so this so group. particular one? <laughs> Goodness. It's like yeah. He's building like a little CV full of them. Well, I know. Well, but anyway, am yes. talking particularly about the, um, the, the closures, the community closures. Ooh. Anyway, there's this great group in Western Australia. They're called the Conservation Council of Western Australia, and I'm guessing Chris Smith can probably tell us a bit more about them. I'm sure he knows who they are. They've got a Community Action Month called Eco May and they're basically promoting all kinds of uh, activities that promote uh, conservation of natural wilderness and values. So um, they launched it during the week. They've got over 80 events and activities already registered. Now, you can register these events anywhere around Australia. At the moment, it's a bit WA-centric, as you might expect, but they've got 80 activities currently registered, Um, a Mossman Park Eco Fair. I'm assuming there's a Mossman in WA, either that or it's the Mossman in Queensland.
0: Or the Um, one in New South Wales.
1: Oh, could be. Yoga on the beach.
0: Oh, so I that could would do be that.
1: Nice. I could do that. Yeah. Uh, working yeah. bees at particular wetlands, um, oh. resource recovery tours, all sorts of stuff. So I wanted to give them a big plug because all we're hearing is bad news out of WA and I uh, wanted to really kind of promote the fact that there's some really good stuff going on in WA as well. So if you want some more information, you can go to their website. It's um, just ccwa, which is Conservation Council of Western Australia, dot org dot au and slash eco may 2015 sure if you just went to the Ecomay website, uh, the CCWA website, you can uh, find the list.
0: Oh, nice. Good news. So. We can
1: just news. Th- now, it, it comes
0: in a bucket, apparently, the news. <laughs> grab um, bag. <laughs> grab bag. Now, would you like to kick off or will I kick off? Oh. Got, like
1: a grab bag. Either way. There's a whole bunch of stuff.
0: I'm going to quickly tell you, you one. And I, and I That really grabbed my fancy, actually, that I saw recently. And that was um, about um, a bunch of... Australian and New Zealand um, scientists uh, who were doing, doing eavesdropping, they were basically trying to find blue whales okay, in the Southern Ocean. It was part of a thing called the Australian-New Zealand Antarctic Ecosystem Voyage. Now, try and work out that acronym. Anyway... <laughs> And oh, they vie- remember the words. Anyway, but the, what they were doing was I looking at the uh, at the region's top predators, and um, it was led um, and a bunch of different scientists went down, and one with the snappiest title I've ever heard: the Australian Antarctic Division lead. Acoustician. Ooh. Mm, he's an acoustic scientist. Dr Brian Miller. Anyway, they put a whole bunch of directus, directional sonar boys, which again, they'll be great words, a sonar boy. Yeah. yeah, I work on sonar boys. Anyway, these are huge big boys that have sonars in them. They can listen. And what they do, they place them around the Southern Ocean and they were trying to triangulate where the blue whales were because blue whales are hard to find. That don't normally hang out together. and even though they're like the biggest animals in the in the existence, they, you know they, they hide mm. in big blue oceans. Anyway, so they, what they were doing is listening for the low rumbling sounds of the blue whales and then using that to guide the ships to them and then they were actually trying to study them. Unlike some of our friends up north, they weren't trying to kill them, they were just trying to study them. Yes. They did take some biopsies though and they did stuff that was all non, you know. So this
1: is real cetacean Exactly, science. it's re-
0: Exactly. Anyway, they detected, this is the coolest thing, like they were able to detect individuals singing, you know it's still called singing, whale song, from 750 kilometres away. Wow. Because it's such a low frequency rumble. Yeah. And I actually got a grab of it to play on air, but it's so low you can It's like really hard. You have to have literally it in your headphones. You cannot. So I decided not to play it on air. But if anyone wants to go to the CSIRO or the Antarctic Division website and just Google blue whale song,
1: and you can hear a blue whale,
0: and it's like a really low rumble. Anyway, they heard um, 40,000 calls. Over the voyage. Um, the furthest one away was 750 kilometres, um, and they, they saw 80 whales. Wow. So they did find them coming together in in certain areas. So that was pretty cool. They individual they had photo identified 58 individual blue whales. They sent them to the Japanese. If they'd like, to. no, I'm kidding. Um the um they these guys here's some little factoids. Um they took biopsies from 11 humpback whales and blue whales. They travelled 15,000 kilometres to do this. They t- took 370 biological samples. 345 gigabytes of echo sounder data. Wow. So there's some little echo sounder postdoc monkey in the background, like analyzing all that right now. That data. <laughs>
1: um,
0: and then they did all kinds of they were checking for everything. So they were filtering for plankton and all kinds of stuff and krill. They filtered over 3,500 litres of seawater. They had 33 onboard experiments to measure primary production and 55 under, underway conductivity temperature depth profiles. So they basically dropped the CTD, they're called, sorry, conductivity measures salinity in the water and temperature and depth and they dropped them all the way along. And 12 of those Argo floats, you know, those oceanographic floats we've talked about on the show before that measure all kinds of different stuff in the ocean. And then they put out 10 continuous plankton recorders. Wow. I mean, it's just like massive. Anyway, they had a great time out there and they collected so much data that there's probably 60,000 PhDs for the next 12 years. I was
1: going to say, what (laughs) are they going to do with all... I should have said those data before. What are they going to do with all those data?
0: Well, they're going to... What they're using it is to work out essentially... Well, it's basically to try and understand the ecosystem of the Southern Ocean. You know, I mean, it's a huge ocean that's important that mm. helps feed our marine ecosystems, particularly along the south of, of Australia, you know, in terms of fisheries, as much as it is in terms of climate change and other things. So they'll be doing that.
1: Mm. Side, so that was an interesting one. Very interesting one.
0: You can go to antarctic.gov.au cool news and you can find out more about that
1: i don't know if you um ever watch this is a complete side note but every time i hear the word data now i pull myself up on it i don't know if you've watched adam hill's show the last leg i was mm. watching it and um he's being plural no i know the no. fact that his co-hosts were tearing him apart for pronouncing a data rather than data and oh. adam hills is oh. sitting back going it's data and they are the whole studio audience were just killing themselves laughing. But hang on, was It's a British... data, it's data. Yeah. Pretty they are British audience. I know. Wow. It stunned me too. I
0: do that nerdy thing that only we scientists can do where I correct people's yes. plurality on yes. it. Because <laughs> <laughs> data are plural.
1: That's... Uh, I I, put, I do the same. so nerdy. Well, I put that right down to the influence of um, one professor, yes, Michael so J. Keogh, so Yes, so do I. <laughs> Mick, if you're listening, yeah. you've scarred us both for life. We
0: are all the product <laughs> of... of um, <laughs> those types of
1: Mixed things. tenacity in, in correcting um, the English language and grammar in particular. It's true, though, because a single one is a datum. It is. <laughs> anyway. There you go. Here's your little bit of English for the day. I've got a couple of stories here. Um, also, I don't know where to start. I've got five in front of me. Oh, goodness. Um, and we've g- only got seven minutes. No, seven eight eight minutes. minutes. <laughs> All right, I'll go with this one. This this comes off the back of a um, story we were talking about last week as well. Uh, we were talking about, about the Geelong Star, okay? Um, AKA the current yes. super trawler. Is it a super trawler? Whatever. It's a really big boat and um, <laughs> a ship. We were speaking with Tony Marto from the Australian yeah. Conservation Society about this. Uh, because it had... Um, had to report through AFMA, the Australian Fisheries Management Authority, that um, there had been four dolphins and two seals killed and uh, they'd, they'd basically the, um, uh, gone out again. Anyway, very sad to report. This is on um, the ABC. So this is in
0: Australian waters?
1: Yeah, this yeah, is just right. off. So it's in, in Geelong, based in Geelong. Yeah. Um, another four dolphins. Goodness. Reported yesterday from AFMA.
0: And is this, do, do we know, is this, I mean, because they do self-report, a lot of fisheries self-report, they have that you know, the rule to do that. Mm. Some, I don't think, do it all the time. Some do, some don't. Um, But um, is that... Be more than would be expected? Or is that kind of what you expect?
1: I think so. Well, When when it came in last time and reported these um, these mammal deaths uh, the, it went out again sort of saying oh we've got this new um, mechanism in place to make sure it doesn't happen again and it's come back after its last voyage out there and had to report another four dolphins had, <sighs> basically they drowned in the nets. They yeah. put these massive big nets out. So uh, it's oh, now... Oh of
0: course and they're so far, the, net, the end of the net is so far away from the actual boat that you have no idea, you can't Observers don't help. No, you know. So it's not like our our normal size, smaller scale, even the big boats fisheries operations. You can actually have observers, and they can try and yeah, they, yeah, can, right. they can see when the dolphins of course, are coming because
1: these these they're kilometres and kilometres yeah, along these big nets so by the time the dolphins are brought in it's already yeah. too late. Yeah. So um, some inflammatory language last oh. week from the uh, spokesman of the uh, Small Pelagic Fishery Industry Association, Graeme Turk, who likened these sorts of incidents to roadkill and you can imagine what the reaction oh. was like amongst the conservation sector. <laughs> Not happy about this. Anyway, he's come out this week. I'm assuming he copped a bit of a hammering during the week so his statement about yesterday's uh, press release is the July Star operators have voluntarily agreed to suspend fishing operations following the accidental deaths of four more dolphins. These mortalities have been reported to AF- AFMA and uh, the SPFIA shares the this is the small pelagic fishery industry association shares the wider community's distress at the death of the dolphins and the Geelong Star will remain at port until a comprehensive plan is put in place. Oh, interesting. To make sure that uh, dolphin mortalities can be avoided. Gee, that's a, a, a change of heart. Yeah. Yes. Well, we'll see. I uh, mean, in terms of language, at least. Yes, yeah, that's, that's right. But anyway, we'll see. We'll stay tuned for that one. I'm sure it's not going to be the last, but we can, we can only what, hope. What,
0: what I you know what I wonder, um, <clears throat> you know, those scale fisheries, um, bycatch is massive. You know, I mean, that they emit themselves. And I you, know, you just wonder whether... It's pretty standard for that kind of scale of industry, but it's only because there's a scrutiny now that people are actually noticing and hearing and going, actually, no, it's not okay to lose, you know, eight dolphins in, you know, how many ever weeks. Yep. And you want to have, you know, this, but there is, you know, you maybe you
1: may one,
0: but not, you know. Not so many of yeah, them. Yeah, and so that's interesting. And how many people are going oh. to be
1: happy knowing that the fish that they're either buying from the yeah, fish and chip yeah. shop has come at the expense of all these dolphin deaths, I suspect, if Espe- they knew. Especially after
0: years of kind of, you know, the tuna industry changing its its practices to make it dolphin safe, and all of a sudden you're going for little fish and killing dolphins. That's right. Yeah.
1: Um, another – we've got some really interesting news here. This one I really wanted to mention. It's fresh um, – has come out. It's a, a joint study by University of Queensland, um, WWF, World Worldwide Fund for Nature, and Boston Consulting Group. Uh, so there's a paper that's come out and led by University of Queensland's Professor uh, Ove Her Goldberg, mm-hmm. Uh, what they've done is they've had a look at the basic... Uh, they've estimated economic output by the world's oceans collectively. Goodness. So they've basically created the world's oceans as a country in its own right. Oh, wow. So it's been estimated at $2.5 trillion a year in wow. terms of uh, what they're estimating the ocean sort of economic value is. So rivaling nations like Britain or Brazil. I was going to
0: say, that'd be like as big as some of those big South American countries.
1: Yeah, wow. well, it's the seventh in the world.
0: Wow. If you
1: actually... Treated the oceans as a country. So a really interesting way of looking at it and... uh
0: and that would—that's probably it'd be interesting to know too, whether that's full ecosystem services or that's just that's actual costed stuff.
1: Yeah, so it's just costed stuff. No so it's, way, it's Value really? value of goods and services, but the overall asset value is uh, estimated to be ten times. That. I was
0: going to say because if you took into account, like, so that's actually just costed—that's real economic cost value as opposed to, you know, some of those externalities that we, you know, that, that get called externalities, ecosystem services. Wow, that's right. Gosh, that's a big, that'd be the biggest country in the world then. Economically. Yeah. Wow.
1: So extraordinary. How interesting. So the report values carbon dioxide absorbed from the air at $39 a tonne ad- absorbed, drawing on estimates by the US EPA to judge damage from warming such as more flooding or risks to human health, hmm. $30, $39 a tonne. Wow. So really interesting stuff. We're going to try and...
0: Carbon's cheap then on the carbon market. Chicago yes. carbon market is nowhere near $39 a tonne at the moment. That's
1: right. So the UN spokesperson who's coming, Dr. Lambertini... Uh, has said uh, it relate. It goes back to um, some targets that were set at Johannesburg in 2002. Mm-hmm. So this was the United Nations Earth Summit. Do you remember that? Mm. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Feels like it was yesterday. Anyway, it was it wasn't 13 Actually, years was. ago.
0: No, it was yesterday. That <laughs> was yesterday.
1: 2015 was set. As <laughs> we didn't
0: have children. Tw- <laughs>
1: did you know? We didn't. 2015 was set as the goal for repl- for um, oh, restoring depleted fish stocks. Oh. So here we are. It's not happening and uh, so who you, do we
0: hold to account
1: well there are now goals that are going to be set in september for 2030 no. and uh no. we'll see what happens with that but they're urging governments all governments to achieve this un goal of creating protected areas they're looking for 10 percent cover of all ocean areas by 2020 and currently it sits at 3.4 percent oh it's actually higher than i thought it was mm. hey we've got time for one more okay do you want Have to you go? You
0: want? no no i'm 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 good I'm ready to go. We can we can <laughs> play music.
1: I've got I've got another really super quick one. Okay. So this this um, came through the news feed as well. Uh, this, this is a good story. This is they're doing some trials looking at um, transplanting kelp beds to Tasmania. From. From New South Wales. <laughs> wow. So um, you, you can imagine wow. what that would be like because the in terms of the surge and the general yeah. um, wave, you know, the the sea conditions, where kelp is yeah. often it's it's. I can't imagine trying to grow a garden in those sorts of <laughs> conditions, which is what they're trying to do. Yes. So the kelp comes from northern New South Wales. It grows all the way around to Western Australia and obviously yeah. provides its own eco- ecosystem for hundreds of marine species. But it's thinning out, it's becoming patchy, and a lot of it is because In Tassie. Yeah, in Tassie. Yeah, yeah. Because of warming waters. Yeah,
0: I was, I was right. So that's where they're taking New South Wales ones.
1: Yeah, to see if they're going to <gasps> be warmer. Because they warmer
0: surviving. Yeah. Wow, how interesting.
1: So they've been transplanting 500 kelp plants. And um, Craig Johnson, who is from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies, he's one of a team of scientists conducting this research. So it's a bit of a stay tuned article, this one. Yeah, this yeah is wow, kind of that's interesting. Letting, letting us all know mm. that it's happening. And let's let's hope that it achieves some change.
0: And we're going to say good day to Cliff. Cliff. Cliff Davis is um, listening oh, yes. from he's ah. just logged in from Antarctica. So get a Cliff. Cliff. Must be warm down there today. <laughs> <laughs> Um,
1: We've been wondering how you are, Cliff.
0: <laughs> so and hi to everyone um, who's following us through um, online and Facebook and all those other live streams. But yeah, so Cliff often li- listens to us, but he's just he I mean, So it must be. What I don't know. What time is it down there? I don't know. Uh, who idea. knows? I never know what time it is. in Tell Antarctica. us, Cliff.
1: You can um, tell, yeah, tell us via Let our us Facebook know
0: page. On Facebook. What time is, what it, time is in it in Antarctica? Um, and what's the weather like? Because it's. I guess it's warmer here. Hey. So you're on radio, Marina. <laughs> That's Mariner. a Fair, fair bet, Ed. <laughs> Thank you. I like to state the freaking obvious. Um, and uh, Cliff has got back to us. It is six thirty in the morning in Antarctica. The wind is gusting at fifty-five knots, but it's a warm negative eight <laughs> degrees. So how's that? Thanks. A very warm negative eight.
1: Good on you, Cliff. <laughs> love it. Keep in touch. Absolutely. We love hearing from you. Our most. So they're three subscriber. hours
0: behind. Where he is an amateur. Yes. There you go.
1: That's dedication. He's yeah. up and listening already. It's
0: probably he's probably it's probably been light for you know oh. four hours.
1: I don't know. <laughs> Was it heading into their winter? <laughs> <laughs> We've got to cross. No, we'll don't have, they have the same winter? we will cross to Cliff. I don't know what happens Not at the now. poles. Anyway, yes. <laughs> we'll be in touch. Hey, 25 to 10 and welcoming back into the Triple R Studios for the first time in a while. We're so delighted from officially the VNPA, Chris Smyth, good morning.
2: Good morning to you. and It's good to know that you're now the Antarctic Bureau of Meteorology. Yes, <laughs> yes we, try to, we try to please.
1: We try and cover all angles. <laughs> How have you been? I've no, been good. I think last time we caught up with you was when you were with ACF and you were doing some work on um, looking at uh, sustainable fisheries assessments mm-hmm. and providing some guidance. And you're back with the VNPA now,
0: which is the Victorian National Parks Association. Yes. For those that are not up with the acronyms, what,
1: yes. Let's talk generally. What's what, how's marine conservation as a as a world of campaigning.
2: Which, which scale are you talking about? Where do we want to global go? Or let's start with local. National.
1: Actually, no. Let's go national to start with.
2: Well, there's certainly a number of issues which are bubbling away at the moment. Obviously, the super trawler is one of those. Uh, the Commonwealth Marine Reserves Network is another, where the the Coalition Government is reviewing uh, the marine uh, reserves right around the country, and they've established bioregional advisory panels. They've got a science review panel. And so there's quite a few people working on that with submissions and so on, trying to persuade the panels and uh, decision-makers that uh, we need to really hold the line in terms of the Commonwealth Marine Reserves and uh, hopefully, in some cases, maybe improve the protection levels. But uh, I'm concerned that there will be uh, some uh, watering down of the protection levels in that particular process.
1: Is it getting harder, do you think, particularly with the current federal government and their... their, um regard, or lack thereof, for marine environmental values?
2: Well, they, they came into government with a very strong uh, opposition to uh, the marine reserves. They basically said they were locking out recreational fishers and they wanted to do something about that. And there's been certainly a reduction in capacity in terms of marine campaigning during the Commonwealth Marine Reserves process when the Labor government was in power. There were certainly a lot more marine campaigners. And, uh, obviously, groups uh, are probably uh, having to sort of tighten their budgets and also uh, look at ways in which they can get, I guess, more effective campaigning out of less resources.
1: Mm. So let's move to state. What's happening at a state level? We've got a new government since you were here last.
2: Yes, and there's some interesting policy commitments, which uh, will certainly drive some of my work for the next little while, and that's certainly uh, very encouraging. And uh, so, for instance, the Marine and Coastal Act, which uh, the government is committed to. And also the State of the Bays report is another thing which really needs to be uh, established. And so we're really keen to encourage the government to establish a really strong, comprehensive monitoring program. You can't really d- develop a state-of-the-base report unless you're actually monitoring something and, mm-hmm. and a really clear set of environmental indicators which can actually tell you whether, in fact, things are getting better or worse.
1: So with state-of-the-base, bays, we are talking Port Phillip and Western Port. Yes? Others? Not,
2: not necessarily. Okay. It's, um, those who have read the, uh, the the government's election policy commitment uh, will know that a lot of the commitments are very, uh, very light on for detail. Mm. And so our assumption is that it will actually be more than just those two bays, and we would hope that it would be. and uh, But it would require an awful lot of work in terms of establishing a baseline monitoring program.
1: How does that get teased out in terms of working through those details?
2: Well, groups like VNPA and others would be working closely with... We would hope working closely with uh, government and bureaucrats too and fisheries uh, marine managers and so on to come up with a, uh, a program which is really suited to what... Objectives of it, are.
1: Mm.
2: it. Sounds like one of the first definitions is what is a bay. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon there's four big well, embayments I think, in Victoria. Well, I, think I think they might have included estuaries in there as well. Yeah, so yeah, that right. does that yeah. does open up things yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. Hey, you mentioned. Can I? Just, you, you
0: mentioned go. an act. Yes, yeah, so I uh, Yeah, OK, sorry, Brian. Yeah. No, you're right. An act, a marine and coastal
2: act. I think we've mm. got the same question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you want to both ask it?
0: <laughs> what
2: is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, is isn't anything at the moment. Um, <laughs> again, a lot, lot of detail. And obviously our view would be that we need to really look very closely at institutional arrangements, the uh, the complexity, disintegration of management and so on, which like we've had along the coast and marine environment for, for many years. And so we would be recommending a marine and coastal authority, uh, which would have uh, much stronger, I guess, uh, very much guidance um, authority, but it would also have some really uh, uh, important uh, roles in terms of developing marine and coastal spatial planning and so on.
1: So is is the idea to pull all the marine and coastal bits out of the existing state legislation, so out of all of the various acts that currently exist, like the Flora and Fauna Act, the Environment Protection Act, the... Um, the
2: Coastal co- Management Act. Yes,
1: all that stuff. Well, fisheries co- Act.
2: Well, the Coastal Management Act would obviously be very much affected by establishing a marine coastal authority. VMPA's uh, policy is that we really need to have an Environment Act, uh, which will cover all the other things you were mentioning in terms of flora and fauna and so on, and in terms of national parks, etc. Uh, one of the worrying... Uh, signs in the election commitment was that protected areas would come under uh, the Marine Coastal Act and that would really be, I think, a retrograde step. We really want to make sure that all of our protected areas are under the one piece of legislation and unfortunately we have uh, protected areas across a number of different acts in terms of, for instance, the Crown Land Reserves Act and so on. Uh, and you have the nature conservation reserves under different legislation. So we really need, need to um, make that better, more effective, streamline it, simplify it and uh, the current um Victorian Environment Assessment Council statewide assessment is actually going to be looking very closely at protected area categories but also categories of 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 all public land right across the state. So that's actually going on at the moment and uh, there will be t- periods of public consultation, which people will be able to get into. Would an act like the the and Coastal Act, I think you called it? That's that's what <laughs>
0: the government's be, called it. Sorry, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, would it be only environment, or would it be planning and yeah, ports that's, that's what and I was
1: thinking. Is it And, and this comes back to that general philosophy, and you find this with management as well. Do you put it all in the same bucket, or mm, do you put yeah, it in two separate buckets? Mm. And this is something that I think governments have struggled with over decades. Mm. So, And we've seen it with the, the pulling apart and the putting back together of the conservation side and the natural resource management side. So we have a, a depi where they're put together and now it's been pulled apart again and, the, and then and they're put back together again. And, and this has been going on for years. Mm. And it
0: doesn't mm. seem to fall down ideological lines either because yeah. it's both types that pull them apart and yeah. put them together. Yeah. But, you, yeah. know, you can see philosophically yeah. that yeah.
1: It, you can see arguments for both sides mm. but things never seem to quite work or they just get to the point where they're starting to work and then A new government comes in and does the reverse of what Mm. the previous government
2: did. That's why an act is important because departments and so on can be sort of changed, letterheads changed and so on. (laughs) Um, But the issue is really integration, but it's also what are the objectives? What do we actually want to achieve? And so, for instance, if if a marine and coastal authority developed a integrated marine spatial plan, it may be that that authority would delegate responsibility, say, for fisheries management to fisheries of Victoria, yeah, right. parks management to parks Victoria, <coughs> ports management to somebody. and uh, But those agencies would need to ensure that what they were doing was consistent with the objectives of the plan. And uh, so uh, the authority would actually monitor their performance. Right. And would have teeth or something yeah. to do something. Right, OK. And oh, claws as well. Teeth and claws. And a few carrots and a
0: few sticks probably <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and
1: weaponry and no. it's actually a
0: really nice set of shoes. Painting, <laughs> <if anyway. laughs>
1: teeth, claws, a stick and a I carrot. Yeah. We've, we've a whole we've got bunch it's
0: of perfect. Oh, can we talk about pippies? Yeah, let's talk oh, about talk about pippies.
1: The humble pippy.
2: Yeah, who would who would have thought? Who
1: would have thought?
2: <laughs> so for those that don't know what a pippy is, a pippy is? It's a small bivalve mollusk. Yeah, which lives sort of about hundred millimeters below the sand surface in intertidal beaches, where there's a bit of store, where there's a bit of action in terms of wave uh, action. So it stirs taste, up the sand. And, and they, they taste nice to uh, both
0: humans and it seems
2: fish because they use the yeah. bait. and they're filter feeders. Yep,
1: Donax um, deltoides. Yes, and they're everywhere. Well, Maybe. this is the issue. Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah.
2: Well, they may be everywhere, but the, in terms of where they are in sufficient quantities to be able to encourage recreational and commercial harvesting, there are sort of a few areas in Victoria, and so that's in Discovery Bay, uh, in Venus Bay, which is on the the east coast, and also around sort of shallow inlet area. I think that also you probably find some along Ninety Mile Beach. But uh, recently, there's been a huge upsurge in recreational harvesting, and for instance, uh, people have counted up to about two thousand people harvesting pipis on the Venus Bay beach.
1: And are these just people wanting to go and put them on the end of their hooks and go fishing with them—is that mostly mm. it?
2: Well, hard to. T- well, there hasn't really been any genuine, or sorry, any serious monitoring as to what what actually is going on, how much they're catching. There's been some enforcement activities down there, and they've certainly discovered that people are taking more than they're supposed to. Um, they were able to take five litres of pippies. That's been reduced to two oh, it's litres. It's and uh, But when you've got a couple of thousand people in the beach yeah. harvesting mm. it. Uh, it's, uh, I suspect cool. they're not all used for fishing. They are actually Use really well, nice food. to eat. Well, well, there are reports. Yeah. Uh, there may be other ways in which they're disposing of their pippies.
1: And if you're talking you about... You
2: mean eating them? <laughs> well, not the commercial. Sort <laughs> of, well, uh, that's what I'm going to say, yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. So if you're talking about these areas, so you mentioned Venus Bay, presumably these... Times come in pulses. So over summer, we've, and particularly that six week period between just before Christmas and the end of January, where a population of a little town like that might, you know, quadruple. Is that something that's being thought of as being problematic?
2: Well, Venus Bay, certainly there's been more people coming down in their holiday houses, but they're certainly getting an awful lot of people coming in, driving in. Sometimes they come in buses. Uh, there's a real problem in terms of where do you put all these uh, vehicles, and that's causing problems in terms of parking. There's a, a big impact on social amenity down there, but it's also impacting on sand, dune vegetation, uh, as well as uh, removing lots of pippies. It, uh, it removes food for pied oyster catchers. It also disturbs beaches for hooded plovers. And so this, as well as the impact on the pippi population, and that generally uh, is really obviously the, the busiest around summer, mm. but, and it, but each year the locals have been noticing that the harvest seems to be ending earlier because the pippies are disappearing more quickly.
1: Right, and of course they've got their own important role to play within their own ecosystems as well. We tend to mm. forget that because they're under the sand, that they're actually a really important part of that that benthic ecosystem mm. that exists there. Um so what's the VNPA calling for? Well,
2: we're calling for... Moratorium. Basically, the government, just before caretaker period, signed off on new regulations for pippi harvesting, commercial pippi harvesting, and they uh, basically said you can go to Discovery Bay, parts of Discovery Bay Coastal Park and parts of Cape Loop Track Coastal Park and commercially fish there. and uh, Unfortunately, they've chosen the area in Venus Bay where scientists believe should be pretty much left alone because it is actually the fee- sort of the, uh, the source like area the store, for yeah. pippies further up the beach. And so what they've done is you've got very heavy, intense recreational harvesting on the north part of the beach up towards Point Smyth and then down towards Cape Lip Trap. That was sort of fairly lightly fished, but now it's being opened up to commercial fishing. So that's a real issue. Mm. but. The other big issue is that Fisheries Victoria has been encouraging pipi harvesting. They've claimed that it's sustainable, but there's really insufficient scientific evidence to do that. They've based that on a couple of honours theses. And not to denigrate honours theses, there's been some great work done there, but uh, the th- the actual work done was not an s- ecological sustainability assessment. It was basically very much uh, a snapshot of uh, pipi harvesting.
1: Yeah, and there's only so much that you can do with a couple of months of field work yeah, that, you know, exactly. that concentrated yeah. research time. Uh, we're going to get you back in. We're going to continue with discussion about other things, Chris. But I want to pick this up again in the next few weeks because obviously this is an issue, and the, um, there's a. It's part of a. a lo- it's a long-term issue. Mm. It's not something that's going to be resolved. Yeah. Would you like term. to come back?
2: Well, I'd love, love to have cool. you <laughs> We're always happy to come to Triple R. But
1: you're going to stick around. I am going to because we're around. going to move our discussion on to um, talking about.
0: Marine snow. Deep
1: horizon fighting ah, on marine snow. Yes.
0: Mm. Well, indeed, you are on 3 R. We had a quick caller then. We well,
1: did. Bill from Phillip Island. Thanks for calling, Bill. He, he wanted to um, bring to our attention something that a uh, made, of his has been following over the last five years or so, completely unrelated to what we've been talking about, but absolutely fascinating. And I'm wondering whether either of you have ever heard of this. Noticing a trend that with, um, with whale beachings, that about three weeks afterwards, there's either a volcanic eruption or earthquake. Earthquake. There's some oh, kind of major how catastrophic, and he said he's been following this for five years and he's noticed a trend.
0: How interesting! We he's should get back at him and talk further.
1: That's it. So the thoughts are: are the are the whales Seismic panicking? Wobbling. Yeah, they they're, they're yeah. detecting something, panicking, and, and just getting the hell out of the ocean. How interesting! Never heard of that before. Mm, Have you heard anything made. like that, Chris? I
2: sort of vaguely remember s- some uh, stories about that. That they can certainly pick up those kinds of.
1: Really deep vibrations yeah. that can't be picked yeah. up yeah, yeah. by yeah, But I think rumble. Rumble. Stranding, I strandings
2: out. involve lots of different factors. And yeah, uh, but no maybe this
1: might be one of
2: them. It could be. I think we should pick that
0: up yeah. at another time yes. because it is an interesting thing. Hey, um, last week we covered... Uh, you covered, in fact, on the, the five-year anniversary of the BP Deepwater Horizon spill, and this week we're going to expand on how something known as marine snow is emerging as an important part of how the oil moved around the marine ecosystem. Um, so what has marine snow got to do with the impact? of the Deep Horizon um, oil spill five years ago. And what is marine snow? And, well, I'm going to come to that, yeah. So, in case you missed it, the, um, during um, the 87 days that where uh, oil leaked in, from approximately 1.5 kilometres deep in the Gulf of Mexico, an ex- estima- estimated 210 million gallons of oil was leaking, about 25% of that was recovered by skimming and burning directly at the surface. So there's a quarter gone. Okay. Some of it was evaporated and some was quickly consumed by... Actually, there are natural oil-eating bacteria. and so. But a large fraction then, uh, and we don't know how big, was either dissipated, dissolved or dispersed naturally you know, by wind or chemical dispersants. Anyway, there's an oceanographer at um, at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, my old stomping ground, called Utapasso, who's concluded that a large proportion of the spill from the well was carried to the sea floor by stuff called marine snow um and just as an aside I worked with people who studied marine snow and they don't in the tea room they don't call it marine snow they call it something else it's slightly more evocative of what it really looks like and it's okay what do you think
1: I'm going to go with snow.
0: Okay. It's marine snot. Right. Because essentially it just looks like kind of snot, frankly. (laughs) kind of sinking down. Anyway, but slightly fluffier. Anyway, so I just thought I'd let you know. Marine fluff. Fluffy snot. It's it's kind of snotty snow. Um, Anyway, it's fluffier. Anyway, so what is it? It's basically lots of small particles, um, phytoplankton, feces, feeding structures that have been sent off by zooplankton, so little plants, little animals. Um, it's bits and pieces of other stuff like sand, soot, or inorganic dust, and it all sticks together um, in, in the ocean. And then sometimes it's actually bits of bodies of plants and animals that die near the surface and fall and decay. And it's essentially like leaves falling in a forest, but it's through the ocean and it looks like snow or snotty snow.
1: Or ash. Yes, ash,
0: a little bit like ash, exactly, yeah. Only recently um, some oceanographers have discovered that some bacteria in the presence of oil actually respond to the oil by making mucus, and that clumps them together. Right. And so then they they, they collapse and form these really mucus-rich marine snows. So anyway, as these snowflakes grow, they collect stuff on the way, and you can get up to several centimetres in diameter, you know, so they're quite big. And they fall for weeks, you know, reaching the ocean floor. And it's kind of like this constant rain of marine snow is kind of like a deli, so all you know the food for all the animals along the way in the in the shallow water and the deep parts where they scavenge. And if they if it gets to the deeper water, the things at the bottom either filter feed it or scavenge it. Right. Um, and NASA have found that there's. Plenty, there's plenty enough carbon and nitrogen in it, so it's a massive food source for deep-sea ecosystems. Wow. And it's essentially just the snot from the ocean. Now, there's a small percentage that doesn't get eaten on the way down or eaten as it sits there on the seafloor or scavenged, and so it turns into this muddy ooze that blankets the seafloor um, and then there's further decomposed. Guess how much ooze of this muddy ooze there is in the world's oceans? To In, just have a guess, like just as an average covering the using ocean. Using
1: what
2: unit of measurement? Um, Square kilometres or? Say so percentage of weight? the ocean floor. 50 gazillion tonnes. Nearly? Good
1: <laughs> Percentage of the ocean floor, I'll go 30.
0: Three quarters of the ocean floor. Oh, covered,
1: 75. Yeah, 75. Oh, my percent, God. Covered
0: in a thick ooze. And then this is a cool one. This is from Noah, um, as in not a person called Noah, but the American uh, oceanographic. Your mate, Noah. Agency. Yeah. yeah, Noah, this guy I know down <laughs> the pub. Anyway, Noah, we had a few pots and he said, so as much as six metres every million years. Okay, so wow. million years, six metres of this stuff, really important stuff, lots of it down there. Anyway, so it's everywhere and oil sticks to it. As mm. it sinks, so it's either trapped in the formation of it, you know, like I talked before, or as it sticks to it on the way down, just by chemistry. And another interesting fact is because the seafloor in the, you know, obviously in the ocean, but in the Gulf is actually wobbly; it's not spread evenly. Mm. So as the oil, f- as the marine snow fell, collecting oil, much of which was broken up by dispersants on the top, <laughs> um, it grabbed oil and took it down the bottom. And then, of course, it either goes—you know—it maybe it comes to the top of a hill and then rolls down to the middle. So it's like there's there's these areas where there's lots more of it. It's like marine Tetris. It, yeah, it kind of is, yeah. yeah. And so, anyway, these scientists and this work by Otto Passau at um, UCSB reckons that between 3 and 25%... So it's a big range, but a number that's between 3% or a quarter of all the oil ended up connected to marine snow and on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. So the whole question about where it went is, you know, that's a really interesting one. Completely new research mm. makes complete sense mm. from the perspective of oceanographic and ocean, you know, chemistry, chemical oceanography, etc. But it helps researchers understand where the oil went. No one had kind of predicted that that much of it, because oil, of course, floats. Mm. You know, no one had predicted that that much of it would be actually sitting on the deep ocean floor in the Gulf of Mexico now. And, of course, that means that in a future spill, deep spill, it means you might respond completely differently
2: if you're imagining that one quarter of it's going to sit on the Mm. deep marine ocean floor. You've got about more than 3,000 oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. uh, Yeah, wow. And uh, some recent research has been looking at uh, the impacts on Marine species which live in those deep water environments, or in sort of mm. the c- central part. So there's a sperm—I didn't even know sperm whale lived in the Gulf of Mexico, but there are sperm yeah. whale there. Uh, brides whale. There's also a lot of bottlenose dolphins, and they've been finding some real impacts on dolphins. Big concentrations of nickel in sperm whale tissue, and so on. And because uh, often people think, if it's if it's if there's nothing happening on the beaches. Mm. in the wetlands and mm. so on, then it's not a really big impact. And so they very quickly cleaned up those areas, but there's certainly a lot of impact in the deeper waters, which no one really knows much about. No, exactly And so I think true. what you're saying yeah. is, uh, connects with that because a lot of the oil has gone down and clearly um, there's, there's very much a vertical and horizontal flow of uh, nutrients and so on through the, those deep water and the, areas. the
0: deeper water, because of the cold and the fact that it is so far down, the cycles, the, you know, like a cycle on a beach could be 24 hours in terms mm. of, you know, kind of... You know, you can see ecosystem cycles working on beaches almost, you know, there's, like, daily movements of it. But down there, they're very slow cycles. Mm. You know, the water doesn't move. It has long resonance times. It's very cold. Um, you know, ecosystems move very slowly down there. So the kinds of th- this particular... Um, in the speculation, there's an article that I found this from in the conversation, in the speculation, that was like, we just won't know the kinds of impacts out of a deep spill like that, you know, mm. that actually puts that stuff down there for decades. Because
2: mm. certainly for sperm whales live for about 50 or 60 years, and so... That in that sense, there's going to be a sort of a long time of sort of what's mm. going to actually happen to that particular population. But it's interesting that um, if it's all happening in deep water and generally perhaps cleaned up and reduced the impacts on coastal areas, it's actually being used by BP to say, look, it wasn't that bad. We don't need to be fined as much as uh, you thought you were going to fine us because at one stage it was going to yeah, be eight, 18 to $20 billion. Right. And in January, a federal court judge said, oh, well, the cap is going to be $13.7 billion. And the company's put aside $3.5 billion. <laughs> And so, That's a bit and that, fine, that fine is going to be used to reconstruct the areas, so whether it's restore uh, wetlands and what have you. It might be construction projects and so on, but every time the fine comes down, um, there's less money available for uh, actually trying to resolve some of the issues which are caused by and deep isn't water it, Isn't it
0: interesting when you see research like that, you, the, the, you know, just imagine, even if it's 5% of the total oil stuck to snow and moved to the deep water, how do you mitigate you know, the environmental mm. impact of that. I mean, you can, mm. you can imagine redesigning beaches and wetlands and you can imagine even kelp forests and you can imagine that these things have been done. But, we, you know, we, uh, half the time we don't even know what's sitting
2: on the bottom of that ocean, no. half a kilometre, or no, one and a half kilometres down, let alone how to mitigate it, perhaps, perhaps to clean it up. Perhaps, perhaps BP's next project will be actually to actually mine a seabed of uh, oil.
1: I was... I've actually, do you know what? <laughs> gonna, that thought has passed through my moment. mind. Mm. <laughs> We're going to leave it on that note. I know we are. That's a very. But, Chris, thank you so much for coming in. A pleasure. And uh, we're going to go into the green room and I'm going to hit you up for a time (laughs) very soon. Okay. Come in and continue this discussion. I can't wait. Excellent. (laughs) Hey, uh, and thank you to Kent. He's been out there in the green room taking your calls. And he'll be uh, putting this show up as a podcast sometime during the day. Thanks, Anne. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So much so much to talk about. I know. we always run out of time. We do.
0: we played one less track tracks so to get more talking <laughs> in. So yeah.
1: Hey, John's going to be in next week, and we're going to be covering uh, – there's a new uh, conversation article that's come out about flake and seafood labelling. It's great. So his- It's
0: his. It's a fantastic article. It's his. Read it. It's John's. i better read it's, that before it's his next a co-author. Sunday. And it's a really worth a read. It's a great Excellent. article.
1: Excellent.
2: This has been a podcast from Free Triple R,
1: 102.7 FM in Melbourne.